This is the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Bee Orthopedic Podcast channel. The series is hosted by the chairs of the AOS Resident Assembly and features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy N. Shipley, also known as Nancy MD. She's a board-certified sports fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Portland, Oregon. She is also a producer and host of her own podcast titled The 6% with Nancy MD, in which she shares the inspiring stories of women thriving in traditionally male-dominated fields. Additionally, Dr. Shipley is a champion of DEI. She co-founded the Speak Up Ortho platform, which encourages awareness and action in the medical field and beyond. Her work in orthopedic surgery, podcasting, and DEI has led to a busy role as a professional speaker where she's shown her passion for helping others open doors to be more and do more with their lives. Dr. Shipley, welcome to the AOS Career Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to chat with you. The general purpose for today is to talk about how to identify imposter syndrome and ways to overcome and mitigate these feelings of self-doubt. And I know you've written about this on blog posts and talked about this in your own podcast, but what does imposter syndrome mean to you? How do you define it? I found that it was something that I experienced for years and years and just didn't have a name for. And it wasn't until I started coming across some reading about it where I was like, wow, imposter syndrome, that sounds super familiar. All of these things sound like exactly what I've gone through myself. And what was recognizable was the idea that I'm a fraud and I don't belong here. Or do I actually belong here? Are they going to find me out? As we'll probably get into today, there are definitely some detrimental aspects of having imposter syndrome, but surprisingly, it can actually serve a good benefit. And there's a reason that it's seen a lot in high achievers. Yeah, I think it's so important to define it because once it has a name, it feels like something you can approach or conquer when it's this thing in the back of your head. You're sort of like, I don't know what's happening. Exactly. And I know personally, I felt it manifest in a variety of different ways. How has it been harmful to you and how, or how have you seen it be harmful for others? I think for my personal experience, it was harmful when, like you said, I didn't recognize that this was actually a thing and that it was a thing to recognize and overcome. And when I would experience these feelings of self-doubt and feelings that I don't belong or, you know, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, or I'm not whatever enough, it has the potential for making you stop in your tracks and turn around and tuck your tail between your legs and run away. When I discovered that this was an actual thing, it really helped me just lean into the feeling at the same time, but also figure out ways to overcome it. Almost having an internal conversation with myself saying, okay, remember what this is, you know what, this is imposter syndrome, and this is what you need to do to overcome it. We'll get into it a little bit later, what those tips and tricks are, but I think you mentioned this, how it is also something that can be beneficial there's a lot of research showing that women and minorities are more commonly experiencing imposter syndrome, or at least admitting they're experiencing it. How do you think it can be beneficial for 
these groups. So perhaps one example of how imposter syndrome manifests is that say you have an upcoming project or for many of us, we have presentations to give or talks to give. And one way that people with imposter syndrome will tackle a project is A, have anxiety. Anxiety can be normal and beneficial, right? Because if you're a little too type B, you won't get anything done. So, you know, a lot of us will have a little bit of that preparation anxiety. The idea that you have something that you want to strive towards and really do a good job, it may lead to over-preparing, which in retrospect, after you're done giving your presentation or whatever, you might say, oh, it wasn't that bad. I probably over-prepared a little bit, but I think that just enough anxiety to make you really excel. That's why I think when we look around us and we look at fellow physicians and fellow orthopedic surgeons, why we are excelling in our fields because we probably have had this level of anxiety and this level of over-preparing, which has turned around and been beneficial. And I think the trick is not letting it get out of control so that the anxiety part is crippling. It's so interesting you talk about presentations because I have heard you talk about your relationship with public speaking as a place where (laughs) imposter syndrome has helped you. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? I laugh about this all the time because I will sit back and go, huh, that's funny. I'm a podcaster and huh, I'm a public speaker. And I think all the way back to high school and junior high and how terrifying it was to be called on or to have to raise my hand or to have to speak in front of other people. I was absolutely terrified of speaking up, of saying something wrong or being judged. It wasn't until several years ago when I decided to get into podcasting and decided, hey, I think I have something to offer when I do my public speaking engagements that I realized I actually enjoyed being behind the microphone. This was how I tackled this fear was I turned it 180 and I decided to face it head on. Fear can be bad. It can be paralyzing, but fear can also drive you to do a good job because you don't want to fail. And so I think it's funny when I look back. I'm glad I took that turn because it's been really rewarding. I definitely, even still, I get nervous when I have to do like a presentation, even if it's a case I was in and I know everything about it because I did it. I'm like, I don't know what if I say the wrong thing and it's scary. So I actually love this podcast. This has been really fun for me as well. What brought you into the social media podcasting? It's not like a thing that a lot of orthopedic surgeons do. They're not super involved in social media and you've done a really great job. Oh, thank you. Getting onto social media initially was just a fun outlet for me. There just really aren't a lot of us women in orthopedics. We have the potential by putting ourselves out there and showing our authentic selves, including all the messy parts of being a surgeon and playing all these other roles and being a mom and trying to balance family and having a two physician couple and all of these things that are messy about life. And I just wanted to show not only that I was a woman in medicine, a woman in orthopedics, but also infuse a little bit of just the rest of what 
makes me me so that maybe somebody else who wants to go into orthopedics can relate. They see somebody who looks a little bit like them doing something that they want to do, just showing that it's possible. And so I thought social media was a great avenue to do that. I think the reach is so much larger. Since being in practice, I have always volunteered and done career days in schools, and I still enjoy doing that. But your reach is limited, right? Your reach is limited to those kids in that class at that moment. Whereas when you get yourself on a platform that is a little bit broader reach, you can touch so many more people. And I've gotten so many inspiring messages on Instagram or Twitter and just people that I would never meet in real life halfway across the globe just saying thank you. It's not like I'm doing anything special. I'm just showing, okay, well, this is my life and this is how it blends together with my career. And that makes it worth it. It's been a fun and interesting path learning about social media and just on there as an orthopedic surgeon. I think that's great. When I see other orthopedic surgeons, especially women, I really prefer to see the authentic craziness of life than it more so like, this is what I did in terms of patient care. I think there's something about it that seems more accessible for people. I'm not quite that good at it yet, but I'm definitely on it. But I hope that as I get out of training and have different priorities, and I can use that as well to be a mentor for some people who maybe just aren't in my geographic location. Yeah. And I think in addition to that virtual social media mentorship, it's just a really nice way to even connect with colleagues. I think that's one of the reasons I like Twitter so much is because of the whole ortho Twitter community. It's just a really nice way to become much more connected within our field that goes beyond the being physically present at the various meetings. Yeah. It's like real time conferences with experts across the globe. I'm going to bring it back into our imposter syndrome. What kind of advice do you have for medical students, residents, attendings who are experiencing imposter syndrome and how to cope with it? I think you mentioned the number one thing is just to know that it's an actual syndrome or phenomenon that a significant number of people experience. Some of the research out there says that as much as 70% of people at some point along the way will experience that imposter feeling. And I think it doesn't really matter what stage of training you're in. It can hit at any time. In the course of my podcast and interviewing all these really interesting, high-achieving women in all different fields... There was not a single person I spoke with who said, oh, no, I've never had imposter syndrome. <laughs> Everyone was just so familiar with that. And when you see a CEO and a fighter pilot or a surgeon saying, oh, yeah, I have also felt like I don't belong here. I don't deserve here. Someone's going to find me out. Just knowing that these people who you may look up to also experience it, really normalizes it, can be really helpful in you yourself coping with it, no matter what level of training or career that you're in. I think something that's also hard when you're experiencing imposter syndrome is that sometimes you will fail and part of being human, you make mistakes, something happens. Have you had any experience with some sort of disappointment and 
you felt like the imposter syndrome was just really creeping up and taking hold of you? Definitely. I experienced it. One example is me starting my podcast. So I have had the idea and the concept for my podcast, The 6%, for a very long time. It was before podcasts became popular. I was a resident, was going through an airport and saw an airline captain, commercial airline captain. And I was like, huh, don't see too many ladies doing that. And I was thinking, I wonder if she would have some interesting stories to share with me. And I was thinking that would be a really good story to share. I don't know via what kind of media and who would even listen. Here I am, a resident. But it stuck with me and it's marinated in there for years. And it would also be so cool to talk to women in professional sports and on the business side and the coaching side where you don't see a lot of women. When we were approaching this unprecedented 2020, I had started to think, I've really gotten into podcasts. I should look into what's involved. So I really put together all these plans for how to execute this and made a wish list of just sky's the limit who I'd want to talk to. And then I sat on it and I sat on it. And then I was like, well, I'm prepared to launch it, but who wants to talk to me? Nobody <laughs> wants to talk to me. And why would they want to chat? I'm just this orthopedic surgeon. And then pandemic hit. And then everything got shut down. And all my elective surgeries got canceled. I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs and not having this much time ever in my life for as long as I can remember. I was like, what do I do now? I don't have anyone to operate on. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm sitting at home, but damn it. So is everybody else. <laughs> and so I started calling the different guests and potential guests and not one of them said no. And I was shocked. So long answer to your question. I think imposter syndrome definitely made me put it off for a long time, but I think for us as surgeons, what we don't realize is that we are actually really good at a lot of things and we shouldn't sell ourselves short. And when we pursue new opportunities and something that's different than what our normal day to day is, there are so many translatable skills, the things that put us through college and med school and made us get those good grades and plan our studies to be able to score well on all those standardized tests, like these are really transferable skills. And we need to remind ourselves of that whenever imposter syndrome strikes. No, I think that's a great point, especially in training. I think you feel like you have this set of skills that is very specific because you don't have any time to do anything else. But I'm hoping that when it's over and there's a little bit of time, I can keep using all <laughs> these skills. We are a high achieving group of people in orthopedics. Everyone's ambitious, capable, but I think a lot of people don't want to admit that they're feeling imposter syndrome. Have you experienced any pushback or negative encounters from anyone after you spoke out about your own experience? I actually haven't. I would say more than anything, I have had a lot of really positive reception from both men and women. And the research in the literature says that women and people of color tend to especially be prone to imposter syndrome. It does not mean that the guys don't. And I've actually had a lot of positive feedback from male colleagues as well and acknowledging that it's important to talk about this. So it's been largely positive 
that's another tactic is looking at your successes and going back and reflecting on them. That's another way to combat imposter syndrome. It's like, okay, this was something that was successful and it was well-received. That's something to put in that mental bank to draw upon when imposter syndrome comes around again. That's great to hear. We talk about it in medicine because that's what we do and that's our career. But have you experienced imposter syndrome in any other aspects of your life, being a mom, just being out, being a woman in the world? 100%. (laughs) It happens in just about all different arenas of life. I really enjoy eating food and I do like cooking, but I am a very bad baker. So like, here's one example of something from everyday life. If I'm tasked with making cookies, I think imposter syndrome (laughs) will sneak in there and be like, you can't bake. But actually, I know how to follow instructions and I am good at measuring. So actually, I can't. When I learned I was going to be a mom, pretty much a lot of my pregnancy, I was like, oh boy, (laughs) now I got to raise another person. (laughs) I can barely keep my clean sock drawer full. And how am I going to do all of the things that parents do? But fine. Like I was saying, transferable skills (laughs) are helpful. Being up all night for call, very helpful in those early infant days. A hundred percent. So yeah, I think it can happen in just about any area of life. And if you kind of remember and retain those skills for what to bring out of your toolbox when imposter syndrome decides to show up, then you have a way to combat it. My daughter and I was a PGY3 and my first six weeks, every night I was like, oh, I'm so glad I took call all the time because I just wake up every hour for nothing, except I didn't have to leave my apartment. So I guess that was the one good part about that. (laughs) So we talk a little bit about like overcoming imposter syndrome, but I don't really think that's impossible. You really have to manage it. It's not something you can cure. And I listened to a podcast recently where one of the guests spoke about how having a value system can help you manage imposter syndrome. Has this been part of your process at all? Yes, actually, I was introduced to this concept a couple of years ago when I went to a great conference for women physicians specifically. And I don't know if you're talking about the same thing, but this exercise had me list all of my different roles that I had and assigning value to it. And it was interesting because I found that I held a lot of roles. Like we think, okay, I'm a mom and I'm a surgeon, but then you really think about all your different roles. I'm also a daughter. I'm also a sibling. I am also a volunteer. And you kind of think about all the different ways you interact with the people around you, the world around you. And it's easy for us as orthopedic surgeons focused upon our career and our families and everything else that we're interested in to get overloaded and to overcommit ourselves. And so assigning values to our different roles, that exercise was really helpful for me to figure out what my top priorities were. Yeah, I did a similar exercise at our chief retreat. It wasn't specifically for roles, but I think that's a great way actually to go about it. From what I hear from you and what I've heard from other people is the best way to manage your imposter syndrome is to have a perspective shift because I think that's really what it is. It's a misperception of your own ability. So I think that's definitely what I was talking about. Do you have any advice on 
how to be a mentor to someone who is experiencing imposter syndrome and maybe is being detrimentally affected by it. Sharing our own experiences in imposter syndrome and coming across that is important. But as a mentor talking to a mentee, I think that all of us do it from time to time, but we'll make statements like, oh, I'm so dumb. I botched this or I botched that or I have no business being here. And these are really detrimental comments for us to say to ourselves. And it's not particularly kind. You would never say that to someone else. And so as a mentor, I think when you are encountering someone who is having that negative self-talk, you need to empirically challenge it. And, you know, it's not as simple as saying, no, don't be silly. You're not stupid. I think that's not enough. I think it's asking those probing questions that forces the mentee to basically refute themselves. Say someone who's a resident and they're like, oh, I don't belong here in residency. I don't deserve to be here. Maybe towards that person, you would say, oh, so are you saying that the residency committee is incompetent and offered you a position when you really didn't deserve it. And so questions like that, that force the individual to say, no, I think they're rather (laughs) competent people. So I guess I do deserve to be here. Those types of questions, I think, are really good at getting the person to talk themselves out of it. I also saw something interesting. There is some research out there that shows that when the support is given to you outside of your immediate circle or outside of your immediate organization, it can be actually more effective. It's almost like when you're a teen and you're like, oh, I'm not stylish or I don't like my hair. And your mom says, oh, your hair's beautiful. You're like, of course, because you're my mom. Whereas if you are getting that support from somebody outside your immediate circle, sometimes that can actually be more effective. I recently had someone give me a nice feedback who was in orthopedics, but not in my chosen subspecialty, made me feel like I was in the right spot, even if it wasn't what I expected. Any other specific advice or practical advice on a day-to-day, how we can improve our confidence and manage our imposter syndrome? It's a little embarrassing to admit. I actually, in my notebook, just ran randomly notes down or make checklists for things that I want to do that day. Whenever I get a new notebook, I actually will list some things that remind me that I deserve to be where I am. And so it's listing your strength and you don't have to copy your CV into every inside cover of a journal that you use, but it's something that I look at regularly and it's just nice. It's nice to see that every once in a while as a reminder. It's that kind of reaffirmation that you have these strengths and you have these skills and that you've made these achievements And that's a really easy and quick way to snap you out of something. And just knowing what is important also can be helpful on a day-to-day basis as well. So Dr. Shipley, thank you so much for chatting with me on our podcast today. Where can listeners go to connect with you to learn more about what you've been doing on your platforms? 
So my website is one place to find me, and that's nancymd.com. And I am on most social media platforms, including Twitter, Instagram. And my handle is at underscore nancymd. And my email you can actually find on my website. But if anyone ever has any questions, wants to reach out to me directly, please email me nancymd.com. Perfect. I think we talked a little bit about finding mentors within our field where we can share these experiences. And the AOS has our resident assembly where we have residents from all over the country. So if anyone is interested in joining, you can go to AOS.org and join our resident assembly. So thank you once again for coming. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being on. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bombi Orthopedic Podcast channel. For more information on this topic and to hear other conversations on professional development, please visit aos.org forward slash the Bone Beat.